The president does read, and he also consumes intelligence verbally. Huh? This president, I'll tell you, is the most informed person on planet Earth. Ah, so now she's a comedian, too. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO and Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but today you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, back as your guest host today and, well, for the next couple of days anyway, so Brad and Desi can enjoy a couple of summertime days off. Not that they're going anywhere because we're all staying home because the coronavirus is exploding in the United States. Ah, just one of the major stories hitting us today as we reach the halfway mark in 2020. Seriously, the year that feels like it's already gone on for 10 is halfway done. Now, if we can only make it through the next six months. We got a busy show for you today. The Nation Magazine's justice correspondent, Ellie Mastal, joins in to talk about our very broken Justice Department and the Supreme Court's end of the term. But we're not quite there yet. So let's get right to it. In a surprise move, the Senate on Tuesday night cleared an extension of the Payroll Protection Program, the PPP, until August. Now it heads to the House. Although the administration appears to have moved on from the coronavirus crisis, Senate leaders and some top Trump administration officials indicated plans to move on a new coronavirus response package after the 4th of July recess and to have it passed by the start of the month-long August break. McConnell saying on Tuesday that he anticipates that the Senate will take up another package to deal with the COVID-19 response, which he indicated would deal with unemployment benefits that expire at the end of the month, liability protections across the board, and increased funding for testing, treatment, and vaccine development. While we're on the subject of COVID-19, the number of new cases in the U.S. has gone up 80 percent in the last two weeks alone adding to the country's record of confirmed cases, which is the worst in the world. Dr. Anthony Fauci, of course, the nation's leading infectious disease expert, warned as he testified before the Senate on Tuesday that the U.S. could see more than a doubling of current tallies of new cases every 24 hours. We are now having 40-plus thousand new cases a day. I would not be surprised if we go up to 100,000 a day if this does not turn around, and so I am very concerned. Finally, some Republicans are getting the message and are publicly pushing for face mask use, which medical experts agree is one of the best lines of defense. Among them is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who said there should be no stigma about covering up in public. And other Republicans have connected mask use to reducing the risk of another round of economic shutdowns, but... Donald Trump remains notably silent and unmasked. Globally, the pandemic is still raging, but some places are doing better than others. In Beijing, the Chinese government has approved the use of an experimental vaccine that's being used on the country's military. 
The European Union on Wednesday, July 1st, opens up to some travel. On Tuesday, they released a list of 15 nations whose citizens will be allowed back on the continent. The United States is not one of them. In Yemen, the pandemic is overwhelming hospitals and cemeteries. More young people are dying there than in most other countries, and the virus is spreading so fast the WHO believes it could infect nearly the entire Yemeni population. Tell me how familiar this sounds. Almost everyone who's in a position there to prevent a catastrophe is instead making the situation worse. The Houthis, the armed group under whom most Yemenis live, are refusing to acknowledge the extent of the outbreak and threatening people who do, fueling panic and conspiracy theories among the public. And of course, here in Florida, where I live, one of the states where the spread has exploded, Governor Ron DeSantis says, He won't even consider another shutdown and blamed the spread on those kids, those young people who he said you can't control. I wish I was making this up. Now on to that bombshell news story about the Russians paying bounties on American lives in Afghanistan. The New York Times is following the money. Reporting, quote, American officials intercepted electronic data showing large financial transfers from a bank account controlled by Russia's military intelligence agency, the GRU, to a Taliban-linked account, evidence that supported their conclusion that Russia covertly offered bounties for killing U.S. and coalition troops in Afghanistan. Democratic lawmakers are not satisfied after attending a briefing at the White House that was run by White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows instead of intelligence officials. Adam Schiff is chair of the House Intelligence Committee, and he's demanding that a new briefing be held, including CIA Chief Gina Haspel. As we look at these, and I'm going to call them allegations because I can't confirm or deny uh, any underlying intelligence, Uh, as we look at these allegations, Um, Number one, the President of the United States should not be inviting Russia into the G7 or G8. Um, uh, We should be considering what sanctions are appropriate uh, to further deter Russia's malign activities, um, not uh, further ingratiating Russia into the community of civilized nations. Um, And I find it inexplicable in light of these very public allegations that the President hasn't come before the country Uh, and assured the American people that he will get to the bottom of whether Russians are putting a bounty on the heads of American troops and that he will do everything in his power to make sure that we protect American troops. I do not understand for a moment why the president isn't saying this to the American people right now and is relying on, I don't know, I haven't heard, I haven't been briefed. Uh, That's just not excusable. Um, His responsibility as commander-in-chief is to protect our troops. Uh, And I, I shared the concern at the White House today that I think many of us have which is um, there may be a reluctance to brief the president on things he doesn't want to hear. Uh, And that may be more true uh, with respect to Putin and Putin's Russia than with respect to any other subject matter. Uh, Many of us do not understand his affinity for that autocratic ruler who means our nation ill. Uh, And so if there's a problem with being willing to brief the president on intelligence he doesn't want to hear, uh, that's a problem Uh, for our entire nation's security. So uh, in the Intel Committee, we have asked for an in-person briefing by the Intel agencies. We've asked for any underlying uh, documentary intelligence uh, they may or may not have. Democrats are also calling on the president to make a statement about the ongoing issue. In his initial reaction to reports by the New York Times and other outlets, Trump called them a hoax and indicated they weren't credible. Of course, Trump calls anything that contradicts him a hoax. During a hastily arranged afternoon briefing, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany said the president was briefed on the bounties earlier in the day, having said the day before that he was not briefed because the information wasn't verified. Oh, please. For the first time in nearly three months, former Vice President Joe Biden took questions at a press conference Tuesday following a speech in Wilmington, Delaware, in which he went pretty hard on the president regarding the pandemic. Donald Trump is in retreat. Remember, back in March, we talked about the need to act like we were at war with the virus. He called himself a wartime president. Remember when he exhorted the nation to sacrifice together and, quote, in the face of this inevitable and invisible enemy. What happened? 
Now it's almost July, and it seems like our wartime president has surrendered, waved the right flag, and left the battlefield. And regarding reports of the Russian bounty for U.S. lives in Afghanistan. It appears as though, from what I have, and I don't have access to classified information anymore, but if what I have heard over the last week and the recent reporting that it was in the PDB, the presidential daily brief, the presidential daily brief is something I read every single day as vice president. The president read it every day. I was briefed every morning before I got to the White House and then again. So the idea that somehow he didn't know or isn't being briefed, it is a dereliction of duty if that's the case. And if he was briefed and nothing was done about this, that's a dereliction of duty. Tuesday was primary day, and this time it was the Democratic establishment who had a good day. One week after Kentucky went to the polls, mail-in ballots were finally tabulated, and former Marine combat pilot Amy McGrath was officially declared the winner in the Democratic primary to take on Mitch McConnell in November. It was an extremely narrow 45 to 43 percent victory over state representative Charles Booker, though there is that matter of 6,000 or so ballots that were disqualified in Jefferson County. Mm. Voters in Colorado nominated former governor and failed presidential candidate John Hickenlooper to take on Republican Senator Cory Gardner in November. And on the Republican side, there was a shocker in Colorado as 10-term Congressman Scott Tipton, who was endorsed by Donald Trump, lost his primary to a restaurant owner named Lauren Boebert, who boasts that her employees openly carry guns and is an open QAnon supporter. Oh, boy. And in Oklahoma, voters on Tuesday narrowly approved a ballot measure to extend Medicaid to tens of thousands of poor adults, making their state the first to expand government-backed health insurance during the pandemic. We'll get to the Supreme Court decisions that they've handed down so far this week a little later on in the hour. But in other legal matters on Tuesday, U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly in Washington struck down Trump's third country asylum rule. Enacted in 2019, the rule effectively prevented most Central American migrants from applying for asylum in the U.S. unless they had first sought asylum in Mexico. Kelly, a judge appointed by Donald Trump in 2017, said that the administration failed to comply with the Federal Administrative Procedure Act in what amounted to a wrongful attempt to sidestep the Immigration and Nationality Act, which Kelly said generally allows those reaching U.S. soil to apply for asylum. Kelly wrote that courts defer to presidents in many circumstances, but, quote, determining the scope of an APA exception is not one of them. And a New York judge on Tuesday temporarily blocked the publication of an unflattering tell-all book written by Donald Trump's niece, Mary Trump, that Simon & Schuster is set to publish in July. The ruling was the first legal win for Robert S. Trump, who's attempting to block the book on grounds that it violates a confidentiality agreement related to Fred Trump's estate. The publisher, Simon & Schuster, said it had already printed 75,000 copies of the book and argued that it would be unconstitutional to stop them from distributing it. And a couple of international stories to keep an eye on. Wednesday marks the 23rd anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from British rule to China. The date is traditionally a day of protests in the city, but for the first time since the handover, police did not let protesters hold peaceful demonstrations. The passage of China's new national security law in Hong Kong has already led to the first arrests under the new legislation. Protesters turned out by the hundreds in Hong Kong city centers and at least 70 people were arrested. Also happening July 1st, voters across Russia are deciding whether to approve a slew of new constitutional amendments that would allow Vladimir Putin to run for two more terms in office, potentially extending his tenure until 2036. You just know Donald Trump is salivating at the thought. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. An equal ride. 
Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler. So the Supreme Court term officially ended on Tuesday, June 30th. That was the date by which the justices should have announced their decisions for the 2019 term, wrapping up their business until the first Monday in October when the new term begins. But thanks to the coronavirus pandemic, their schedule got thrown off, so they're not done yet. On Tuesday, June 30th, with 10 cases remaining, they announced only two decisions, leaving eight more still to come. Although we don't have any definitive timeline for when the remaining decisions will be announced, veteran court watchers suggest perhaps Thursday, July 2nd and Monday, July 6th, but it's up to the justices and they just haven't told us yet. So last Friday, I spoke with Ellie Mastal, the Nation Magazine's justice correspondent. We spoke about our broken justice system and the remainder of this very unusual Supreme Court term. Following that interview, I'll bring you up to date on what the Supremes announced in the last batch of opinions. But now, the always insightful and entertaining Ellie Mastal. Ellie, I got to say, things are, are so crazy right now. I was trying to figure out the proper term to call it. What do you call a corrupt Justice Department other than a corrupt Justice Department? Yeah, it's a trash fire, right? It's a, you know, you can call it the injustice department. Yeah. Um, that has a nice ring to it, but it's, it is it is a structure fire over there at what used to be the Department of Justice. Right. And, you know, I played um, a, a clip just a few minutes ago from the hearing earlier this week at the House Judiciary Committee and former Deputy Attorney General Donald Ayer, who said, I'll, I'll play it again since you're here so you can hear it. Justice under two Republican and one Democratic president. And I am here because I believe that William Barr poses the greatest threat in my lifetime to our rule of law and to public trust in it. That is because he does not believe in its core principle that no person is above the law. Instead, since taking office, he has worked to advance his lifelong conviction that the president should hold virtually autocratic powers. That includes immunity from nearly all checks and balances and being able to accord special treatment to himself and his friends. The system that Barr is working to tear down was put in place in the aftermath of the Watergate scandals, which involved extensive government corruption and caused a widespread loss of trust. That pretty much uh, gets to the crux of the matter in the first 30 seconds. Did he get anything wrong there? Nope. Barr, Barr is, I think at this point, easily uh, the worst attorney general um, since, you know, Reconstruction. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, there, there's, it, it's hard to map um, who would be worse. Uh, uh, the heirs uh, the, uh, said it exactly right. There, there is not a thing that Barr believes the president cannot do. And to extend that, that a bit, because there is not anything that Barr believes the president cannot do, he believes there's not a thing that he himself, William Barr, cannot do while allegedly acting uh, uh, for the president of the United States. So it's, again, it's a structure fire. The rule of law cannot exist if one person or one administration is literally placed above it. And that's what Barr tries to do. He tries to place the president and his administration completely beyond the reach of law. Right. And, you know, Donald Trump, he's got a talent for saying things. I guess he floats these balloons. He said... Clearly, openly, when Jeff Sessions was in office, I want my own Roy Cohn. And, and like he, that's what he thinks the attorney general is supposed to be. And then out of the blue comes William Barr, who presents himself as actually somebody credible. He was an attorney general before. He's, he's one of the, you know, he's, he's a career guy. He's not one of these crazy Trumpers who turned out to be the craziest of all Trumpers. And yes, now Donald Trump's own Roy Cohn. Although I, I have, I, you're, you're exactly right, Nicole, but I, I do have to say, like, he, he didn't come out of the blue, right? Right. I, people, people did. I noticed that this was not the right guy for the job, right? Um, and you could have known that Barr was going to be a problem if you looked at Barr's history. The last time he was attorney general, he is most well known for in his first stint um, for pardoning his way out of the Iran-Contra scandal. Right. Uh, uh, and, and he auditioned for the job with a cover letter, an unhinged executive uh, uh, power fantasy cover letter right. um, that all but promised to prematurely shut down the Mueller investigation. So, so Barr didn't hide the ball 
on what he would do if he got this job. I think what happened is that a lot of people, including some Democrats, fooled themselves into thinking uh, because he had served in the post before that maybe he would be a normal guy. I mean, and I think this is part of the general Trump administration story. People keep trying to tell themselves that it's not as bad as it seems. People keep trying to tell them, right? Keep trying to tell themselves that like, oh, actually, they're going to be adults in the room, right? It's only really been in the last, you know, kind of past six months, post-impeachment, post-global pandemic, that people are finally realizing there are no adults in the room and there never have been. I guess. Uh, and, and you would think the adults that were there, we, we hoped that they would do the right thing. But as we're learning with each passing day and more and more people who were in that Trump White House coming forward and saying he's crazy, that these are people who shirked their responsibility when they were in a position to do something about it. Case in point, John Bolton. Exactly right. I mean, Bolton is the poster child for a coward. Yep. Um, for a person who did not do what was necessary while he had the job, did not do what was necessary when there was an opportunity uh, to maybe move the ball against Trump and is only speaking out now because he has money to make and a book to sell. Um, he is the quintessential coward of the Trump administration. But there have been many others. Right, right. There, like there, uh, Trump. Trump seems to be able to have a unique talent of finding cowards and surrounding himself uh, with them. Yeah, he does. Um, and it's amazing considering, as he brags about, he didn't even know anybody in Washington when he got there. Um, <laughs> uh, he, it, they, it's like vultures to a dead body or something. Um, now, back to Bill Barr for a second. I mean, Ellie Mistal, I, this must be weird to you because you take over as the justice correspondent for the nature, for the nation and things, I, they were pretty screwed up before, but they're, they're just, uh, totally out of control. I mean, I look at what Bill Barr has done since he came in and starting with, um, the, I think it was the first thing that he did that we realized he came out and totally misrepresented the Mueller report, completely lied about everything that was in it, and then made it so that nobody could call him out on how wrong he got it for like a month in the future until we saw the redacted version of it. Um, and from it was downhill from there. Do you, I mean, I call this opposite world. It's it's worse than that, though. We are I, I, I'm saying this is a banana republic. We are. This is not the United States of America anymore, is it? No. And, and one of the things that I, I read about, I read about this week was how, you know, what we needed was for people to stand up against these bad actors that Trump appoints before they get into power. That's right. right. Once you have Bill Barr in power, once he controls the FBI, it is too late. It is reasonably too late to do anything about him. The only way that he could be removed at this point was through is through impeachment. We saw how that went with Trump. And we just saw Jerry Nowler say, like, oh, it's not worth impeaching him right before the election. <laughs> I would have said it was worth impeaching him almost as soon as he got the job. But nobody exactly. listened to me. Exactly. Um, you got to remember, three Democrats uh, joined and uh, voted for Bill Barr's confirmation. Uh, Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, and uh, Doug Jones uh -huh. um, all voted to confirm this man. Like the. If you don't stop these people before you get into power, you can't stop them. And so I kind of turn and I look at Jay Clayton. Jay Clayton is the is the former SEC guy uh, that that uh, Barr and Trump now want to head the prosecutor's office in the Southern District of New York. This right. is the whole like Barr firing Jeffrey Berman yep. via press release trying to at least saying that he um, resigned and he said, I did no such thing. And so, and then he's like, uh, and then he makes it all about him. Oh, since you chose to air your dirty laundry, well, uh, and then he brings in Trump to fire him. Trump says, I had nothing to do with it. Or it was all Bill Barr, but he's fired. Nonetheless, Berman says, well, as long as you don't bring in that Clayton guy, make my handpicked deputy U uh, S attorney uh, in charge and I'll leave. And that's what they right. did. But this is only a temporary victory, right? They still want this Clayton guy to get through, and he's wholly unqualified. And and well, and he's a, who is he? He's a golfing buddy of yeah. Donald Trump. Yes, right? he is. Why is SDNY important? Well, the Southern District of New York is the is the is the federal district that has jurisdiction over Trump's family business, right? That's right. Trump Inc. is in the, and so that's why Trump wants a loyalist, a friend, a golfing buddy in that job to oversee the potential prosecution of his business to make sure that his business is never prosecuted. 
The time to stop Jay Clayton is now. 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 Not later, not when he actually gets the job and he and he gives a press conference saying, like, actually, there was no illegality done by the Trump organization. Not then, now. Stop him now. And and that's what we are and, – and once again, Republicans um, and institutionalists are not there. The minority party, the Democrats are trying what they can try um, as the minority to, to block his confirmation, but we don't have – the so-called good Republicans standing up against Jay Clayton right now. Right. But I, so, but let me ask you this, Ellie Mistal, that we, we watched for years when the, I think the Democrats were in control, but maybe they weren't in control of the Senate when when uh, the, the Republicans held up every single thing they tried to do. Can't one senator put a hold on a nomination like this? Can't one senator say, no, I'm not letting this go through? They've removed the filibuster for appointments. Oh, that's right. Right? They, the, the, they, they did that. Yep. So, and, and, you know, at first, Harry Reid did it for lower court appointments. Um, and then when they were trying to get Neil Gorsuch through on the Supreme Court, having that. refused to give Merrick Garland even a hearing, even a meeting. Right. Uh, when they were trying to get Gorsuch through, McConnell took it away uh, for Supreme Court appointments. So there is no effective filibuster um, for these people. I would just like to point out to Democrats that if they ever take control of the Senate again, maybe the filibuster also needs to be abandoned for some of the policies and, and programs that they want to they want to push forward. If they want to get anything know. done, I, yeah. I guess. And the th- you know the the whole thing. Uh, d- correct me if I'm wrong here. I've been pissed off at Obama for for the whole Gorsuch thing because um, uh, Merrick Garland should have had a hearing. Was there anything that Obama could have done? Because it seemed like he didn't do enough. He did. He didn't do anything. Am I wrong to like be mad at him for this? I mean, I, Nicole, I struggle with this. <laughs> like, it's, 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 it's a struggle for me because I look, I was, I was there in real time writing about this and, and, and commenting about this. Um, I think in hindsight, there are two things that I would have done differently. One, I would have nominated somebody that's not Merrick Garland. Right? I would have not, I, I, I mean, quite oh, right, frankly, yes. yep. I would have nominated um, a much more kind of, uh, uh, what's we're looking for, um, openly progressive person, mm-hmm. most likely a person of color. Mm-hmm. And I would have really tried to rally public support around that person as opposed to what Obama tried to do, what I think was, which was rally public support around the idea of having a suit, right? So like from Obama's perspective, it wasn't about Merrick Garland. No. It was about the seat. I think I yeah. would have flipped it and made it about a person, right? Mm-hmm. No, we have to get this black woman, let's say, you know, on the court. We have to get this Latina on the, like I would have I made it about a person as opposed to an idea. So that's one thing I would have done differently in hindsight. And two, I think that it would have been appropriate just to shut everything else down, which is kind of what the Republicans wanted anyway. But just to like we were, we are not doing anything. I am talking about this twenty four seven until you guys at least give my nominee a hearing. You can vote him right. up. You can vote him down if you want, but yep. you're, you're you're gonna get on the record. You're gonna give him a hearing. Obama didn't do that way. Uh, so so yeah. So in hindsight, I think those things. But in real time, I understood Obama's play. He. You have to remember that what Mitch McConnell did was so unprecedented. Um, Obama was trying, in the Merrick Garland appointment itself, was trying to be moderate, was trying to get the John McCain's and Lindsey Graham's. People forget that Lindsey Graham used to be um, a maverick, <laughs> yes, right? Right. Uh, was trying to get the John McCain's and Lindsey Graham's and Chuck Grasserly's to break with McConnell by giving them kind of the most palatable choice that he could think of. And I understand from his perspective, you know, this is back in 2016, you know, before Trump has completely taken over the party. Um, I understand, I guess, from his perspective, how that, how that made sense. It's not the way that I would have played it. I don't think, and it's certainly not the way I think hindsight has certainly shown that strategy to have been ineffective, but I, I, I got in real time what he was trying to do with that. Gotcha. All right. But so the bottom line, though, is if if enough, if the Republicans want Clayton in there, there's no filibuster. There's nothing the Democrats can do about it. There's nothing the Democrats can do about, which is why I say Republicans, the so-called never Trump Republicans, the so-called moderate Republicans need to stand with the Democrats. Right. Without because 
because the Democrats can't do it alone. But if Tim Scott showed up and was like, you know, I'm not having this. If Lisa Murkowski showed up, if Mitt Romney showed up and was like, no, we're not having this right now, that might do something. Right. Yeah. In fact, your piece up at The Nation, the rule of law is being gutted because moderate Republicans stayed silent. And, th- and that goes on and on it, on every front. I mean, even today, the vote on on D.C. Be- getting us becoming the 51st state completely along party lines. Why? Yep. Why? You know, it's time for some of these Republicans to say, you know what, this is not the guy I'm going to put my life on the line for. Really? You're going to roll over for Donald Trump? Because it is. It is the guy they're willing to put their life on the line for, right? Like, like, here's here's a question. At what point do you just have to say say, these Republicans want what they're getting? Right. Like, like we we spend a lot of, because they furrow their brows and some of them like send angry tweets or whatever. We act like they are being kind of dragged by their, you know, by, by their feet kicking and screaming um, into Trump's orbit. But maybe it's really the opposite. Maybe they just want to be here. They like I mean, a guy like Mitt Romney, you know, voted for impeachment. Good job. This guy supports 95 percent of Trump's policy. That's right. Right. Yeah, Jeff right. Flake, former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, who, did who seemed not very concerned yeah. about yeah. the direction that the party was going, voted with Trump again over 90 percent of the time. Yep. These Republicans want what they're getting. And we have to remember that when they pretend to complain, we have to remember that when they are up for reelection, the Republicans own this man. They want this man. That's right. Yes. Maybe they don't like his style, but the substance the extent that there is, is is what they are down for. Wow. You know, I, I complain often about the never Trumpers. I hate that they've sort of taken over MSNBC. I mean, you turn on the TV and there's Steve Schmidt and um, Bill Crystal and on and on. There's it just they populate the shows and the airwaves. And I'm, I love the Lincoln Project ads and all that. I think they're very creative and very effective. But we have to remember, these are still Republicans who do not want progressive policies to take over. They would like nothing more than to take over the Democratic Party and turn it into what the Republican Party was before Donald Trump destroyed what they had going on. Am I misstating anything there? I think you're exactly right. One of the things that never Trump Republicans are are, finding to me, it's because like they forget that their policies are massively unpopular. Right. Right? Nobody actually wants kind of moderate Republican policies. The Republican Party has proven the Donald Trump Republican Party has proven that they only pretended to want the kind of like Paul Ryan limited government policies because they understood that it was a way to get some racism in there. Once Trump was just like, hey, you can have the racism without the limited government, without the budgetary constraints, without all the, the Republican Party was like, oh, sure, we'll, we're, we'll just take the racism. Then, right. <laughs> um, the, the, the actual core of this kind of you know, conservative movement, conservative cabal about small government and limited. That is actually a massively unpopular platform. Right. They are trying to make the Democrats adopt that massively unpopular platform. And for reasons passing my understanding, there are some Democrats that seem to be willing to go along with it. And so you'll see, for instance, Democrats now talking about how, well, you know, if we get in charge, we got to balance that budget. Man, Nobody doesn't care about balancing the budget. The no. Republicans don't care about balancing the budget. Like, no. why, why should the Democrats suddenly be, be that party? Uh, it didn't work for the Republicans. It, it's not why they got elected. So, I, I, look, I don't, again, the Democrats don't ask me about their <laughs> They don't, strategy, don't ask so. me either. And now they go to uh, the Supreme Court after midnight to try to get them to totally scrap what's left of, the Ob- of Obamacare. It just, is, it just doesn't make any sense. I, 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 I don't get it. And then um, I, I got to ask you, Ellie Mastal, about uh, you, you have a piece up at The Nation on my other subject that I wanted to talk to you about, and that's the Supreme Court. So I'm sure you were there with me at 10 a.m. yesterday thinking we're going to get a load of decisions announced because the month ends on Tuesday and they have 15, 14 left to go. And they announced one. And I don't want to yeah. lessen what they did yesterday. So they're going to announce 13 cases 
on Monday and Tuesday, they're going to announce decisions beginning at 10 a.m. Let's talk about what they did yesterday, what you wrote about at The Nation. The Supreme Court just took a hammer to the asylum process. And some people reported, you know, they saved the dreamers last week. That's not what happened at all. They didn't save the dreamers. They the, the dreamers got a reprieve because Donald Trump and his cronies don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, so the the two immigration cases of the the last two weeks um, are important. The DACA decision um, is a great win, but a temporary one. Right. Because the reason why Roberts upheld DACA was not because he he thought that the Dreamers had kind of a legitimate claim. Instead, he thought that Trump's attempt to end the program was so bumblingly idiotic mm-hmm. which it was mm-hmm. that he couldn't that he just couldn't go along with it right right make no mistake if trump gets reelected they will take another shot at ending the daca program and the next time they might succeed because <laughs> there's you know as we saw with the muslim ban roberts will give these people multiple bites of the apple multiple tries to get the words right um, and so DACA is still under threat because of the way that Roberts ruled to defend the program temporarily. What they did yesterday was straight up uh, uh, just end the ability for asylum seekers to appeal decisions against them, right. which I-, I can't emphasize enough how terrible that is. Um, it's, it's, it means that asylum seekers essentially have no rights, right? Right. No, you, they have no you rights. Are, if you come, you can you cut you can come into this country and get arrested and then put in a detention camp and then an immigration judge who we the technical term is immigration judge these are not judges these are employ immigration judges mm. are employees of the justice department and report to wait for it bill bar bill they bar. are bill bar oh employees um so that immigration judge can deny your claim for any reason at all and you have and not having a right to appeal that decision means that we basically have to take if you're if you're an asylum seeker, it means that Trump's Trump gets to decide whether or not you have rights, not a court of law. That's that's just it's it's horrible. It's a horrible decision. Um, it was written. It was a horrible decision written in a mean spirited way. Um, and additionally, uh, because Samuel Alito is, is one it's of the worst mean is. In, yes. It, it's just a mean guy. Horrible. Right. Yeah. And so we're and so that's where we are with immigration. Like I can't the 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 way that the Trump administration has stacked not just the Supreme Court, but the federal the federal judiciary in general with hardcore arch conservatives who are virulently anti-immigrant, anti-woman and anti-gay. Um is a problem that we're going to have for a generation. And that's assuming Trump loses. That's God right. forbid he gets another term. Well, and, and Mitch McConnell just announced, I think it was yesterday, that they filled their 200th federal court vacancy. There are no more vacancies on the federal bench for the first time in like 40 years because they kept shoving them through because they did away with the filibuster. And so, I, so the Democrats couldn't hold them up. They have packed the courts with people who, most of them, I think, got a, a, a unqualified mark from the American Bar Association. That used to be a no-brainer that would disqualify them, wasn't it? Yeah, it's not, I don't think it's most of I don't think it's a majority okay, of them, but, but many enough. of them uh, uh, did. Look, it, you, you were criticizing Obama earlier. This is a place where I will criticize Barack Obama. Because okay. in the period from you know, 2009 to, to, to 2012, in the period where Obama had not just the, the White House, but they controlled the Senate. Um, I did not think that the Obama administration was nearly hard and fast enough out of the gate filling uh, federal positions, right? right, they, didn't, right. They, they weren't ready for that fight in a way that McConnell was born ready for that fight. Right. So part of, so there are two reasons why McConnell has been able to fill so many justices. One, they were just ready. They, they had their whole list and they were ready to go and it's the only thing they cared about. And two, because McConnell was so good at blocking Obama judges, um, there were quite a few vacancies uh, available when Trump took office. So it's been... This this has been a long term plan by Republicans to remake the federal judiciary. Yep. Two hundred appointments in under uh, four years yep. is a record by a long way. Um, and again, these are people who can who are appointed for life 
can only be removed through the constitutional process of impeachment. Uh-huh. Um, we are <laughs> going to be stuck with these people for a generation. Then we get back to impeachment. couple of questions on along those lines. Should Bill Barr be impeached? Yes. And, and I don't care. I don't care if he gets impeached on November 2nd yep. and the election is November 3rd. Yep. We have to say that this kind of lawlessness will not be acceptable. Like that has to the president has to be if you are a law, a lawless uh, executive sycophant like Bill Barr is, you get impeached, Re- regardless of whether or not the Republicans have the will and the strength to convict him. That has to be that should be something that the Democratic Congress um, does. They can do it in a day. It's so obvious. They don't right. Need to- but we, but we thought that was the case with 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 Trump, too. So do you agree with John Bolton that the Democrats blew impeachment? No, no, I don't agree with John Bolton. Anyway. <laughs> uh, um, and, and the last person I'm taking advice on <laughs> John constitutional uh, <laughs> processes is John frickin mustache Bolton. Gotcha. Uh, no, I do not think <laughs> Democrats blew impeachment. Republicans blew impeachment yeah. when they refused to convict the president, even though they basically all admit it. He committed crimes. Right. Right. And they, they know it. They know. Look, you got Lisa Murkowski saying, well, you know, I, I'm really struggling with whether or not I can vote for him. Why are you struggling? How do you not know that you can't vote for this man? That everything around us is turning to shit because of the idiot in the Oval Office. It's just mind blowing. I, I, again, I go back to my opposite world theory. Nothing makes sense. Everything is the opposite of what it should be. So, mm. Ellie Mastal, uh, Monday and Tuesday, we're going to get 13 more Supreme Court decisions, including abortion rights, contraception coverage by the Affordable Care Act by employers, Trump's financial and tax records among the biggies. Um, why do you think they've held them to the I know they always hold the big cases for the last days, but uh, this felt like a bit much to me. Am I making too much of it? I mean, I don't know if COVID played a role. I mean, mm. look, technically speaking, the Supreme Court releases cases when they're ready. Right. Um, when they're ready means like somebody's written a majority opinion and then somebody's written a dissent. And then the P person who wrote the majority opinion reads the dissent and addresses it. And like it, it does take time. And I don't know if because of the social distancing and the and the quarantining, um, if if some of these kind of some of this back and forth just took a little bit longer than usual. Um, but it does seem a little bit uh, odd that so many cases are, are, are really left for the last two days. The other thing worth remembering is that technically speaking, the court doesn't have to, doesn't, doesn't have to release all of its cases. It doesn't, doesn't have to. Oh, really? Um, they can save no. some for next term. They can hold on to some and not announce decisions. Say they, they can decide not to rule on Trump's tax records, whether or we not, whether or not we have the right to see them. They could. Oh, shoot. I mean, I don't think that they will, but it's it's technically completely within their discretion to rule on a case when they their their uh, discretion is to rule on a case when they have a ruling. If they don't know what they're going to do with Trump's taxes yet, if they want to wait until the next term, if they want to wait till after the election, there's nothing there's nothing legally let's put like that to force them to. They could what's called relist. They could just decide to rehear the case. (gasps) Hey, we're not sure which way they're going to go. Now, again, I don't think that that's going to happen. But I, I'm just pointing out there that when you see a day, when you see like 13 or 14 cases that are supposed to come out in two days, just remember, all 14 of them do not have to legally come out in the next two days. Wow. The Supreme Court can do whatever the Supreme Court wants to do. So could they conceivably announce some decisions in July or would they have to wait till next term? Yeah. I mean, look, the Supreme Court. I mean, They could do what it, they want to do. It's a courtesy that the Supreme Court even tells us when they plan to release decisions. Oh, right? my God. They can release decisions at midnight on Friday if they want to. Um, uh, so, yeah, they, they could hold it to the law. Again, I don't I don't expect that to be the case. I expect I expect to see at least 10, um, if not all 13 or 14 of these cases um, in the next week. But they they could wow. they could release them whenever they want to release them. 
Well, I will be following. I, I'm, I'm taking the the week of that the the, the week after next. I'm yeah. taking off. <laughs> I, I have put I have put my flag down. I'm on vacation. I don't care what they do. Good for but. you. <laughs> but next week you'll be there Monday and Tuesday, and everyone should be watching your Twitter feed at l e e l i e n y c as these decisions come down. Because you know I I I love reading you, Ellie Mistal, because you're not only factual and informative, but you're really funny too, and I appreciate the humor. Because if we don't laugh, the alternative is is much much worse so one last question before i let you go because we're getting close to the end of the hour um we had we by we i mean progressives we had a pretty good day on tuesday it's looking like perhaps the protests perhaps the the hitting you know the the breaking point with the 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 treatment of black people in america by by people in authority police most notably has it just reached the point of too much and people have taken to the streets and we're saying not no, no more this is enough and the tides are turning am i reading this correctly do you agree with my take on it I, I the the progressive victories in uh, local elections uh, uh, on Tuesday was amazing. Um, I I I've heard a couple of people try to poo poo a couple of establishment Dems try to of poo poo the, uh, the the victories, saying like, oh, but it only happened in safe Democratic districts. <laughs> yes, yes. Sometimes in a safe Democratic district, that's where you need to elect your most aggressively progressive Democrats. That's right. That's okay, yes, right? right? I am happy. I am happy to deal with a more milk toast moderate Democrat if that's the way to win a red district. But in a blue district like where I live, mm-hmm. you best give me an actual progressive. And where I live happened to be the district that elected uh, Jamal Bowman over awesome. Elliot Engel. Right? I was awesome. very happy. About that. So, 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 yeah. I think Tuesday was a was a really good sign. I think you know a big sign from Tuesday is you know you you, you come at AOC, you best not miss. That's right. <laughs> because talk about a routing. She won something close to 75% of the vote. And she they am- put up a very high-profile TV personality who is popular, former Republican, who's probably now a Republican again, that she lost. But uh, nonetheless, she got she didn't even reach 25%. Yeah. That was is out here embarrassing people who spent a lot of money against her. <laughs> right. So, I mean, like, th- those are good signs. And yes, AOC's district is a safe blue one. My district is a safe blue mm-hmm. one. Good. I'm glad that we are electing... Uh, actual progressives in safe blue districts and we can worry about the red and purple districts another time. And, so. and any any closing words on what's happening in Kentucky in the Senate uh, uh, primary? They keep counting those absentee ballots and it keeps looking like uh, Charles Booker is going to be the one yes, to take on Mitch McConnell. Look, there's no more there's no more important race uh, uh, besides literally the president himself mm-hmm. um, than beating Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. Um, and that could happen. I mean, we're there. McConnell is going to do everything he can to suppress the vote, especially the vote of minorities in Kentucky. But that it, he could lose. And that's great. Oh, that would just be what we need right now, because we do need that. We need we have needs right now in this country and we need to heal ourselves from this last four years. And I think the covid infection is part of the manifestation of Donald Trump. I just uh, it's it's just I, sickness. I look forward to one day tearing down a statue of Mitch McConnell. That's, that's my, <laughs> you and me so. both. I will join you, Ellie Mistal. <laughs> I will be there with you, and I will tear it down with you. He's a fascinating man. Ellie Mistal. Find him on Twitter at Ellie NYC. That's E-L-I-E-N-Y-C. And, of course, at thenation.com. In just a moment, I'll bring you up to date on the last batch of decisions handed down by the Supreme Court justices and let you know which ones we're still waiting for. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from The Green News Report and The Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today. So we just heard Ellie Mastal of The Nation explaining that it's all up to the justices to decide when and if they'll release their decisions. 
When he and I spoke last Friday, there were still 13 cases to be decided or decisions to be announced. We knew at the time that they would be releasing some on Monday and Tuesday. Well, on Monday, we got three, and on Tuesday, only two more. So let's get caught up. On Monday morning, first out of the gate was Agency for International Development versus the Alliance for Open Society International. The question decided was whether the federal government can require foreign affiliates of U.S.-based groups that receive federal funds to have policies expressly opposing prostitution and sex trafficking. The vote was 5-3, to the opinion written by Brett Kavanaugh. Justice Kagan recused. Stephen Breyer dissented along with Ginsburg and Sotomayor. This decision reversed the Second Circuit Court, basically taking a restrictive view of the constitutional rights held by people outside the U.S. But things got considerably better 10 minutes later. The second case announced was a biggie, one we've been waiting for on abortion rights. June Medical Services versus Russo. The decision, written by Justice Stephen Breyer, was a very good sign. Then we learned Chief Justice Roberts had the concurring opinion. Whoa. June Medical is a challenge to the constitutionality of a Louisiana law requiring doctors who perform abortions to have the right to admit patients at nearby hospitals. It also questioned whether abortion providers have the right to bring the challenge on behalf of their patients. Bottom line is that the Louisiana abortion law was struck down in a 5-4 vote. What, what happened was the court reversed this Louisiana abortion law that opponents say would, would have closed all but one abortion clinic in the state and, and have lasting repercussions for reproductive rights across the country. Chief Justice John Roberts, obviously a key swing vote in the decision, dissented in another case, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. But he sided with the majority Monday in overturning the Louisiana law based on past precedent. In his concurring opinion, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, The question today, however, is not whether whole women's health was right or wrong, but whether to adhere to it in deciding the present case. So while he's saying he disagrees with the law itself, he he understands that this law had already been decided and there was precedent already set. Roberts and Breyer were joined by Justices Elena Kagan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Sonia Sotomayor in the majority opinion. Justices Alito, Thomas, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch dissented. And the third and final decision handed down on Monday was in the case Sila Law versus the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This was a challenge to the leadership structure of the CFPB, which features a single head removable only for inefficiency, neglect, or malfeasance. And the court, in a 5-4 decision written by Chief Justice Roberts, found that this leadership structure violates the separation of powers. So so they struck down the single-member director structure, but by a 7-2 majority held that the single-member provision can be severed from the rest of the statute. To put that in plain English, the immediate effect of SILA law is that the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau can be removed by the president without cause. But experts say that in actuality, there's no practical effect because the president because the present head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is a Trump appointee because the last head voluntarily left of his own accord. But it also means that a newly elected President Biden could summarily dismiss Trump's appointed head of the CFPB immediately when he takes office in January of 2021. And that was it. They had already announced that they'd give us more on Tuesday. So at 10 a.m. Eastern, I was waiting. Talk about a big buildup for a big letdown. Still nothing on Trump's financial records and tax returns. I have a feeling that'll be the last one they announce. The first opinion on Tuesday was in U.S. Patent and Trademark Office versus Booking.com. It's a trademark case. The question was whether the addition of .com to an otherwise generic term by an online business can create a protectable trademark. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg has the opinion in the 8-1 decision holding that, as a general matter, you can trademark a generic term plus .com. 
So while you can't trademark booking, you can trademark booking.com. It was unusual in that the dissenting vote was from Justice Stephen Breyer, who usually reliably votes with the more liberal bloc, but he's apparently a stickler when it comes to trademark law. The second case announced Tuesday morning was Espinoza versus the Montana Department of Revenue. The challenge was to a decision by the Montana Supreme Court invalidating a tax credit program because the scholarships created by the program could be used for religious schools. Well, in a huge win for backers of school choice, including the woman posing as the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, the Supreme Court on Tuesday sided with three Montana families who asked the court to declare that excluding religious schools from student aid programs is unconstitutional. This case will likely have major implications for the use of public dollars to pay for religious schools. Espinoza looked at whether the Montana Supreme Court violated the U.S. Constitution when it struck down a tax credit scholarship program that allowed students to attend private schools, including religious schools. The ACLU quickly responded on Twitter, tweeting, Today, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four that states can be forced to fund religious education using taxpayer dollars. This undermines true religious freedom and attacks the foundations of the separation of church and state. (sighs) The decision written by Chief Justice John Roberts along those usual ideological lines. And that leaves seven, or, but some of the cases are combined. So here's what we're still waiting on. Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania, which is consolidated with Trump v. Pennsylvania. And the question is whether the expansion of the conscience exemption from the Affordable Care Act's birth control mandate violated the Affordable Care Act and the laws governing federal administrative agencies. So the question of whether or not employers can decide not to cover employees' contraception. Okay, next up, bar that would be Bill Barr, versus the American Association of Political Consultants. And that question is whether an exemption for government debt collection to a federal law that bars robocalls to cell phones is unconstitutional. Okay. Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Berry is consolidated with St. James School versus Beale. And the question is whether courts can hear employment discrimination claims brought by teachers at Catholic elementary schools. McGirt versus Oklahoma is still to be decided. That asks whether land set up in the 19th century in eastern Oklahoma for the Creek Nation remains a reservation for purposes of a federal law that requires some major crimes committed on a reservation by or against Indians to be protected as federal crimes. There's Chiafalo versus Washington and Colorado Department of State versus Baca. And this case deals with the Electoral College. The question asks whether state faithless elector laws, which require presidential electors to vote the way that the state law directs, are constitutional. Although both of these cases involve the same issue, they were argued separately because Justice Sonia Sotomayor was recused from the Colorado case. And then the remaining two have to do with Trump's taxes and financial records. The first is Trump versus Mazars USA consolidated with Trump versus Deutsche Bank. And it asks whether congressional committees have the authority to issue subpoenas to the president's accountant and creditors for financial records belonging to the president and his business entities. And the other one is Trump v. Vance. And that one asks whether the Manhattan district attorney can obtain the president's tax returns as part of a state grand jury investigation. And who knows when we'll get these? Maybe Thursday, maybe Monday of next week, or sometime after that. Stay tuned. And with that, we come to the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. You can always find me at NicoleSandler.com. Hear the show anytime on demand or listen live at 5 Eastern, 2 Pacific weekdays at NicoleSandler.com. And of course, on the Progressive Voices Network. Until next time, I echo Brad Friedman's sentiments when I say to us all, good luck, world. Free money, world.